Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Okay, we come to another snapshot from the life of Jesus here that Mark has put together. Verses 21 to 28. So last week we saw the calling of Andrew and Simon, or Peter, and James and John to be his followers. So the Lord Jesus Christ is there around the Sea of Galilee. He's still there. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. What we have here in this snapshot from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is his divine authority that's put on display. And so we're going to look at it from that standpoint. First of all, as a teacher, verses 21 to 22, and then we'll come to his authority over the spirit world, and then how his fame spread as a result of that. So notice that they they went into Capernaum. They, referring to Jesus and probably his four disciples that he had just chosen. So he's on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is in the north part of the sea. It's right on the border, right on the shore, actually. Sorry, not the border. He's on the shore, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. I had some photos I was going to show you today and walked out of the house without them, so I regret that. Pictures that I took when I was there. But you can go online and look these places up. And you can see the modern uh, place that's known as Capernaum. It's been excavated. It was... uh, Really, it was this, the uh, center of Jesus' Galilean ministry. 
Matthew tells us that Jesus left Nazareth and he went to Capernaum and lived. So many think that he actually moved his residence. He grew up in Nazareth, which is in the Galilee area, but it's not on the shore of the sea. It's inland. Um, It's between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It's in the hill country, about 1,400 uh, feet elevation where Nazareth is. The Sea of Galilee happens to be 700 feet below sea level because it's in the Jordan Rift that's between the mountains and the hills that surround it there. Um, So the Lord Jesus apparently made Capernaum his headquarters, his residence. I'm not quite sure exactly. We don't ever find him sleeping there, that it says, but it says he went there to live. Because his ministry is going to take place around the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding area. Now, back in Jesus' day, they estimate that the population of Capernaum was about 10,000 people. So it was sizable. It was more than a village, but it wasn't a city. It was right in between. It's the town of Capernaum. And there are different words actually used to describe a village versus a city and so on. And this is in between. Um... Capernaum was on a major trade route. The international highway is what they call it today, but in the Bible it's called the way by the sea. And it went from Egypt all the way up through Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, over to Mesopotamia, and it went right through the town of Capernaum. Well, that's an important thing. This was a trade route, which meant a lot of people went through Capernaum. So the Lord's fame, his works and what he said would be carried by the people passing through and would take it to other parts of the world. The majority of uh, Capernaum was Jewish, of course, and there were They were farmers, there were merchants there, and especially fishermen, as we have seen. There was some Roman soldiers stationed there as well. Remember the centurion, he built the, the synagogue. So there was a synagogue there built by the Roman centurion, and he had other soldiers that he looked after and commanded there. So immediately on the Sabbath, so this is Saturday, of course, or Friday evening, but probably Saturday, he, the Lord Jesus, he entered the synagogue. So the synagogue was uh, the community center, a very important place, but it also was the center for worship. And they went there for readings out of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Uh, They would go there to pray. They would go there to worship. It was a very important place to the life of 
the Jewish people. They had their synagogues. There were many, many synagogues. So here's an interesting thing. We know about the ruler of the synagogue. There was some official who oversaw what went on in the synagogue. And if a teacher happened to be visiting that synagogue who had a reputation as a teacher, that ruler would ask that teacher if he would like to teach, if he'd like to preach, give a lecture. Now, the fact that Jesus teaches there tells us that he was invited by the ruler. Jesus had a reputation already of being a great teacher. So he, is, he visits this synagogue and he's teaching. And the, the verb there for teaching means this, this was Jesus' habit. He didn't do it just once in a while. He was a regular teacher. In the synagogues, expound, what do you think he was expounding? The Torah. He was explaining the word of God to God's people. Now, as they listened to him, notice what it says, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. Now, the word in the original for astonished can also give the idea that they were kind of alarmed by it, not simply surprised. There was something about it that might have made them feel a little uncomfortable, actually. This is one of the nuances of this word. So the Lord Jesus Christ, there was something remarkably different about his teaching, and he's compared with the scribes. He did not teach as the scribes. They were astonished at his teaching. You know, there's an aspect of Christ's character, his presence, that might have made people a little uneasy, might have disturbed them. And the what it was is this underlying divine authority that he had that comes out in his teaching. People had never heard anybody teach like this before. Now, his teaching is compared to the scribes. Now, you know from reading the New Testament that the scribes were one of the great adversaries of Jesus Christ. They are usually joined with the elders, the scribes and the elders, or the scribes and the Pharisees. They were among those that were enemies of Jesus in the New Testament. They, they were the men who were supposed to be the experts in the Old Testament, experts in the law, in understanding the law, interpreting it for the people. And they had a lot of prestige. They had a big influence on the public. In fact, the very, like the front row seats in the synagogue, they were reserved for the scribes. When they entered a room, people stood up. They were called rabbi, which means my great one. These were, these were the scribes. Now, 
something that characterizes the teaching of the scribes is they were always quoting and citing the elders. The tradition, it's called the tradition of the elders, which are like the fathers of Judaism. They're, they lived in another time period, and they wrote various things, and the scribes were very familiar with it. And when they taught, they would quote these men, they would say, so-and-so said, and they would cite them, like preachers do today. This was their authority. It was a second-hand authority. They were taking their authority from previous teachers that they quoted. This is what the people were used to listening to. Kind of second-hand teaching. Now, the difference with Jesus, it says that Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. When Jesus taught, his authority was himself. He taught on the basis of his own authority. It comes out beautifully in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 through 7, one of the Lord Jesus Christ's greatest sermons, he says, here's an example. He says, you have heard it said by them of old, you shall not kill. He's quoting Moses in the law. But I say unto you, If you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are in danger of the judgment. And he goes through the law like that. And he says, what you have heard others say this, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, but I say unto you. That was the teaching of Jesus. He taught on the basis of his own authority. In other words, he spoke like God. He didn't have to quote anybody. Because he was God the Son. He was God the Son, which is the same as saying the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. So Mark is focusing here in this first snippet, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus' authority as a teacher. And what he's bringing out is the method with which Jesus taught and the impression that that made on the hearers. This is what he's emphasizing. Notice he doesn't emphasize the content. He doesn't tell us what Jesus taught because it's not the emphasis. He doesn't give us his sermon like Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount, the full thing, three chapters, in-depth teaching. So Mark is not focusing on the content Jesus' words in particular, his focus is on Jesus' teaching style, the method with which he taught, and how that struck the people with his authority, that there was an authority they never heard before. They were used to listening to scribes who would say, well, so-and-so said, and then they'd be able to recite it, and so on. Jesus did not teach like that. Now notice in verses 23 to 26, Jesus' authority over the spirit world. His authority over the spirit world. Verse 23, 
And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now the word unclean spirit, this title for a fallen angel, or what is called elsewhere in Mark's gospel, a demon, here is called an unclean spirit. And Mark uses that to describe demons 11 times in this gospel. The emphasis on saying it's an unclean spirit is it's bringing out the the filthy, polluted nature of this spirit and the influence that a spirit of that character would have on its victim that it possesses. This is in contrast to what is pure and holy which the Spirit is going to acknowledge about Jesus. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Holy One of God, in contrast to the Spirit who's unclean. Notice it says that he, this man was with an unclean spirit. A man with an unclean spirit. That is, in the in the possession of an unclean spirit. Or we would say today he's possessed by an unclean spirit. In other words, this is is the Bible's introducing its readers to something that is true in the spirit world that human beings can be possessed by a demon. Jesus, it would seem that when the Lord Jesus was here on the earth, his presence stirred this up an awful lot, and these spirits were evidence many, many times in his ministry. In fact, his ministry is sort of summed up as Jesus went around doing good, healing people, and casting out spirits. That's called today exorcism. Chaps would be very current if you go to the movies. I do not recommend you seeing that. I saw the original Exorcist back in the 70s, and it was a horrible experience. Evil leaped off of the screen at the viewers, and apparently the one today is even worse. Demon possession is a reality, and I want to draw a distinction here that this man, he was not merely influenced by a demon. He was with a demon. He was in the possession of a demon, which is to say he was possessed by the demon. There is a difference between being influenced by a demon and being possessed by a demon. Christians have even have been influenced by demons. We don't even realize it, they attack people from the outside. They're on the outside, and they know, they, they can make suggestions in your head. You ever had wicked thoughts suddenly come into your head? Have you ever stopped and thought, where did that come from, if you're a Christian? Where did that wicked thought come from? Satan and his emissaries, demons, have the ability to drop evil thoughts into our minds. I don't know how they do it, but they're able to do it. 
It says of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that that whole idea came from Satan. The Gospels reveal that. That was Satan's idea. He gave Judas the idea of betraying Jesus. So the thought life is a very... This is the one of the big battlegrounds where... Satan wants to move in and influence. What does he want to do? He wants to draw us into sin with temptations, with suggestions. Draw us into sin to commit evil. This is being influenced by a demon. But he can also make people depressed and bring people to despair by making them feel hopeless and so on. They have various ways... That their whole strategy is to bring a person to the point where they want to sin and sin and sin or kill and destroy themselves or other people. This is their program. Satan has come to kill and destroy. Now, demon pos- being possessed is a whole other thing. This is where a demon is, enters into the life of a person, invades their personality inhabits their body. Yes. Inhabits their body. He gains control over the victim. So what happened when this man encounters Jesus? Notice, he cried out, So the man is crying out. This is his mouth and his vocal cords that are being heard. But this is the demon talking through him with this question. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice, plural, us. So the man was possessed by more than one demon. There's another account that we'll come to where there was a legion of demons inside one man. And when they went out of this man, the legion of demons, they went into a herd of swine. A whole herd of wild pigs went running off of a cliff into the sea. So this is is more than one demon, but he he is crying out. The word here means he shrieked. You just imagine what that sounded like. He shrieked in rage and terror. The demon is terrified. He is in the presence of the Creator. The one who did come to destroy them. John tells us, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy Satan's works. 1 John 3.8 So they know who they're encountering and why he's here. But just notice these questions. This is interesting. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? They know his name and they know where he's from. Isn't that Interesting. Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth in order to distinguish him from Jesus of Capernaum or Jesus of Bethsaida. 
there were many people that had the name of Jesus in first century Palestine. In order to tell which one you're referring to, you'd go to where they lived, where they were from. So the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, was from Nazareth, and he's called this by the demon. demon knows where he's from. I know who you are, he says, and he gets this out before Jesus silences him. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a, that's a unique title. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's actually used by the Apostle Peter. Peter calls Jesus the Holy One of God in, in John 6. When uh, You remember the crowds were leaving Jesus because of his teaching. His teaching was strong doctrine for them. And he lost hundreds of people, walked away from him after hearing his sermon in John 6. And Jesus turned to his 12 apostles and said, Will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And then he went on to say and call Jesus. We, we know who you are the Holy One of God, the one that the Father has sent, the Holy One of God. John 6, 69. So that's a, that's a unique phrase in the New Testament. It brings out, though, that the demon had an understanding that he was holy, which is, has a couple of meanings. We usually think of purity, but it's also the idea of being separate. Jesus was separated. He was consecrated by the Father for this mission of coming into the world on a rescue mission, a mission of salvation, to deliver us from our sins. And the demon recognized this, that he was sent by God, he was appointed by God, he was separated by God. So it's emphasizing his messianic title, his messianic office as the Messiah. But probably also, no doubt, in contrast to himself, he's a foul, filthy spirit, and he's in the presence of the Holy One, the Holy One of God. What a contrast. You know, the demons, James tells us that the demons believe and tremble. There's no unbeliever among demons. Think of that for a minute. No demon is an unbeliever. They know. They know who Jesus Christ is, but they're not saved. There's no salvation for the angelic race of those that fell. God did not send a redeemer for angels. book of Hebrews tells us that, Hebrews chapter 2. He was sent for those that are flesh and blood. Those that belong to the human race, God was pleased to redeem. So as this demon is spouting off these questions and revealing Jesus' identity, Jesus rebukes him and silences him. That's enough. Like he might have cut him off. What more would the demon have said if Jesus would have let him just keep talking? 
But he stopped him. He silenced him. And he commands him. Be silent. Come out of him. So notice this. There was no ritual of exorcism performed by Jesus. You know, the Catholic Church has a ritual of exorcism. I can't tell you what it is, but I know they do have one because they've encountered it throughout the centuries. So they have specific things that a priest is to do in order to call a demon out of a person. Jesus doesn't offer prayer. There's no incantations here. No ritual, no formula, no technique of exorcism. Jesus simply issues the command. Be silent. Come out of him. It's powerful to me. And notice what it says, verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsed him. He he shook him violently. In other words, this is his last thing to do to this man before he comes out. So he's just doing everything he can to mess with him. He convulsed with him, and then again the demon cries out with a loud voice and came out of him. Again the demon shrieked in terror and rage, but he had to obey. He had to obey. Is demon possession still true today? Yes. There, there's very few ministers, Christian ministers, involved in this ministry, but there are a few, and they call it a deliverance ministry. There are those who, who specifically want to deal with the spirit world and people's deliverance from evil spirits trying to think of the name of one that's very well known. It'll, it'll come to me. Now, some pastors have encountered it by people in their congregation. Uh, I won't mention who it is, but a famous pastor many years ago had a female that was demon-possessed and it took three or four men to hold her down. She flipped a, his table, his desk in his study. She flipped it over with like one hand, one finger. There was an extraordinary display of strength there. I mean, there's a lot of things that have gone on with people that are demon-possessed. So this, this is a thing that has continued throughout the history of mankind. People that become victims of Satan's tyranny. You know, it's one thing to be influenced and oppressed by a demon. It's another thing to be possessed by one. And it's somewhat of a mystery how possession happens. But... Merrill Unger, in his book, Biblical Demonology, says that it often comes through sin. When a person is involved in habitual, a certain habitual sin, it can open the door to a demon entering into their lives. That's all I'll say about that.
But here's the good news. There is one person in the universe that can deliver a person who is demon-possessed, and that's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. So there is hope for people that are demon-possessed. They need not be told, hey, sorry, we can't do anything about it. No, Christians can command demons. We find Paul doing it in Acts 16. Remember in Paul's ministry in Philippi? There was a servant girl in Philippi, a young girl, by the way, a young girl who had a spirit of divination, it says. She made money for others with a spirit of divination. She, had a, she was demon-possessed, and she was following Paul and, and his companions around throughout Philippi, and she was saying, you know, listen to these men. These are servants of the Most High God. And Paul listened to this over and over again for some time, and he knew this was a demon. At first, it might sound very positive because she's speaking highly of them. She's telling others to listen to him. It sounds legit. (laughs) Finally, Paul said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the Spirit came out. And that ended that. So Paul kind of did what Jesus did. He silenced the, the demon which was a similar thing. The demon is admitting who Jesus is. It's very positive. He's identifying Christ for us. Shouldn't you let the demon talk? No, Jesus silenced him. And the apostle Paul did as well. Okay, let me move on to the last couple of verses. So the the story ends in verses 27 and 28. And again, notice the response of the people. This is speaking of the people in the synagogue. So they they heard Jesus teaching. They saw this encounter with a demon-possessed man. And then they were all amazed. Now, this is a different word than the word for astonished. But it also can carry overtones of shock and fear. And some of the commentators read that into it. I I would tend to go along with that because they, they are witnessing something that could have made them feel very uneasy and somewhat shocking by what they just saw and heard. And they were all amazed... So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. So they had heard Jesus teach, and how he did not teach like the scribes, quoting everybody else. He taught on the basis of his own authority, which was something entirely new. They had never heard anybody teach like this before. Never. Nor had they witnessed this kind of authority over the spirit world. That also struck them. And notice how they put the two things together. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
So this is how to think of this. Jesus' authoritative teaching is confirmed. It's illustrated. It is undergirded by this display of his authority over the spirit world. So this miracle of exorcism that he performed on this man had a tendency of just reinforcing the power and authority of his teaching in their mind. They saw both of these things come together and they're struck by his authority in both, over spirits and in his teaching. His authority in teaching was attested to by the obedience of evil spirits. Now, I want you to just think for a minute. Jesus made the command, and the Spirit immediately obeyed him. Here's some advice from his mother, from Jesus' mother to all of us, as it was to the wedding guests at Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2. Do whatever he tells you. John 2 and verse 5. Think of this. this is, here's some good advice from Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is for man. Men and women, boys and girls. Do whatever he tells you. Look at his authority in teaching, his authority over demons... They immediately obeyed. It's only among people where we find that God will put up with people saying, no, I'm not going to do that. No, that's not for me. I'm not going to obey. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Mary says very gently and quietly to all of us, do whatever he tells you. Obey him. Obey my son. Jesus. The very last verse now. And at once his his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So again, going back to the fact that there was the way of the sea or the international highway from Egypt that went through the land of Israel up over the Sea of Galilee went right through Capernaum over to Mesopotamia, over to Iran and Iraq and that area of the world. A trade route. The fame of Jesus was taken by people who may have been visiting the synagogue that morning, who were on their way to Egypt, maybe in the other direction, or east. But his fame spread, it spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, in one of my slides that I was going to show you this morning, I took a picture when I was on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. We crossed the width of the Sea of Galilee from the west shore to the east shore. It was seven or eight miles across. We took the boat ride across. And I took a picture from the boat of Tiberias. I wanted to see Tiberias from the Sea of Galilee. I was interested in Tiberias. 
Jesus never visited Tiberias. It was a Gentile city. It was established by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he established Tiberias around 20 A.D. So there were a lot of Gentiles in Tiberias, Romans that lived there. Still there today by the same name. He named it after the Caesar of that time, Tiberius Caesar. Now, why that is interesting to me is because in Jesus' civil trial, when Herod found out, uh, excuse me, when Pilate found out, who was the governor of Judea, that Jesus was from Galilee, he tried to wash his hands of the trial of Jesus. And he found out he was from Galilee, so he sent Jesus over to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the same time. Herod had that jurisdiction. And Jesus was taken to Herod Antipas. Do you remember what happened there? Jesus did not answer him when he was asked questions. But let me read you Luke's account of this in Luke 23 and verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him. He had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. No, he thought he was going to have a little magic show or something put on by Jesus. Jesus didn't say a word to him, he was completely silent. Herod's soldiers abused him. So my point is, is that Jesus' fame spread over to Tiberias. Herod knew about him. As Paul uh, spoke to Herod Agrippa of the same family line of Herod's in Acts 26, he said to Herod Agrippa, he says, you know these things, for they were not done in a corner. Talking about the life of Christ the spread of Christianity in the world. He was very familiar with it. So Herod, you know, he was curious. He had an interest in Jesus. He had a curious interest in Jesus. How many people are like that today? They're curious about Jesus Christ. Maybe so much so they'll pick up their Bible and want to read about him. There's a difference between having a curiosity about Christ... Versus someone who is committed to Christ, who has a real interest in Christ. Christians of another generation, they used to talk about having an interest in Christ. In fact, there's a book with that title. It's called The Christian's Great Interest. What's that about? It's about... How do you know that you have a saving interest in Christ? A saving interest. In other words, a, I, I want to know about this person. It's so important to me. There isn't any other knowledge that is more important than this. I've got to know about him. Because 
I want to know the way of salvation. I want to know how to know him. Make sure I'm saved. And this book is all about that. How to know that you have an interest in Christ. And then if you discover that after reading it, that I don't think I'm there yet. I don't think I have a saving interest in Christ yet. Then he tells you how to obtain a saving interest. This is a book by William Guthrie, The Christian's Great Interest. So what is your interest in Christ? What is your interest in, in coming to church every week? Is it an interest that is a saving interest in Christ, or is it a curiosity? Hopefully it's not curiosity. Hopefully we're of those who are here because we want to have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that's true for all of us here today. So may the Lord bless his word. Give us an understanding of this passage from the life of Jesus, his divine authority in teaching, his divine authority over the spirit world. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.